Well, good morning. How are we doing? Happy 2017. And so whether you're here with us at our Coral Gables campus or you are back with uh, my people, the folks all the way over in Kendall, or you are connecting with us literally from across the globe through Church Online, this has been my prayer for all of those people and for you this week, that you would not only know, but you would experience the grace of God in 2017. Now, I am so excited that we are kicking off a brand new series today entitled Foundation, where we're taking a look at four bedrock truths of the Christian faith, and where collectively as the people of God, we are saying, this is what we believe. These truths, they're so integral, so important to our faith that to believe them is to say, in effect, I'm a Christian. Now, here's why that matters. If we don't have a strong foundation then the storms of everyday life will threaten to blow us over and life's hardest days, they'll end us. And so if we don't even know the central truths of the Bible, or if we fail to believe them, then our lives will lack symmetry, the symmetry that we need to stand firm when it counts. I'll tell you like this. So a couple months ago, I joined a gym I wanted to work on my fitness. I wanted to top up my energy levels. And quite honestly, between you and I, because he's not here right now, I was sick and tired of Pastor Mark Lesher telling me, when are you gonna go to the gym? (laughs) So I joined the gym, okay? Plus I've got a two-year-old and a four-year-old at home. And so there's no quicker way than exposing your fitness levels or lack thereof of fitness levels than chasing those two kids. And so I went to the gym and here's what I learned right off the bat. You're only as strong as your foundation your core. In fact, it's those unseen muscles that stabilize you, that allow you to lift heavier and heavier weights, and that protect you from injury. Now, in stark contrast to the dude that's got a solid core and a strong foundation is one you and I have probably all seen at the gym. It's almost always a guy. He's got guns up top, but he's got toothpicks for legs. Seriously, every day is an arm day. Does the guy ever have a leg day at the gym? Never. But he's great for people watching, right? But now, if you take that guy and you put him up to a test with somebody who's uh, not as bulky, not as uh, physically, visually looking fit, but rather they have a strong core and foundation, they'll beat Mr. Biceps every single time. I mean, just put them through some total body workouts and functional movements. And the guy who lifts heavy up top but does nothing about his core, he's got no shot. And when it comes to the things of God, I don't want to be a biceps only Christian. I want to be rooted in, grounded in the foundation of who God is and what he's done. Theologian A.W. Tozer says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What that quote is saying there is basically that what we believe about God has the profound ability to shape us and mold us. The Pew Foundation recently released a research study that said only, only 3.1% of Americans are atheists. So if my math is right, that means that 96.9% of us either believe there is a God or believe that there could be a God. And central to what we believe about this God is this, how are we saved? That is, if salvation is being made right with God, then how can you know and how can I know us and God are cool? And so every world religion and worldview, it really offers an answer to this. It offers a way for us to be saved in effect. 
Yet the way Christianity answers this question is what separates it and what makes it so utterly unique against all other religions. See, you do the five pillars of Islam and then everything will work out all right. The Buddhists say that you follow the noble eightfold path to enlightenment so that you can transcend the pain of this world. Roman Catholicism says do good works so that then and only then can God's grace come to you and complete your salvation. Listen, even humanism says do good things so you can feel better about yourself. When scholar and professor, and this is what I, what I love, what makes it so different. See, scholar and professor, a former atheist himself, C.S. Lewis, was in a room and they asked him this question. What's the difference between Christianity and other world religions? He said, well, that's easy. That's easy. It's grace. See, what Lewis knew in his mind was that all other religions say that there is something that you must do to work your way to God. There is something you must do to be forgiven. There's something you must do to earn his favor. And yet only in Christianity do we find that it's actually what has been done for us. See, only Christians can say, I believe nothing I do or have done can earn my salvation. I am saved by grace. And so some sermons um, are great in a room like this, but honestly, this is the type of sermon that I wish you and I were sitting across from each other at a coffee shop. And if we were, we'd sit down and maybe I might ask the question a little bit different and I'd ask it like this. If you were to die tonight and stand before God and had to give an account of, her li of your life, what would your defense be? What would you say? That is, how would you be saved? So that's what I want to look at this morning. I want to answer that question. First, I want to look at how the world answers that question. The most common way, and it's that we are saved by our works. And then I want to go ahead and take a look at why Christianity says it's not our works, but we are saved by God's grace. And then finally, if that's true, I want us to then take a look at what believing this truth does in our life and that it in fact changes us or transforms us. So first, let's examine our works. See, there's really only primarily two ways to salvation. And the first is that we are saved by our works. We get this because we live in a performance-based culture. Okay, it is January 8th, so I know some of you are already gearing up for a New Year's performance review. Some of you are waiting on a report card, right, to see if you measure up. See, everywhere we go, we're being evaluated. And really what this idea says that we are saved by our works is this. I do good works and good deeds and God gives me credit for that. And then God also gives me credit for all the bad things I could have done, but I didn't do. And if I do more good deeds than bad deeds, he cancels some of the moral failures out. Almost as if it's a scale, right? And one side outweighs the other. Now, as common as that idea is that you are saved by your works and that salvation is that way, listen, it will never work. Isn't the idea that we are saved by our works just us rationalizing? Just us saying, well, I'm not that bad. I mean, we've all said it, haven't we? Like, thank God I'm not like that guy. So I love you guys enough. We're one church in multiple locations. I know I don't get the opportunity to see you very much, but I do. I love you and I pray for you. And so I want us to take an easy quiz, okay? So it's called the 10 Commandments quiz. We'll just do an easy one. So let's go. Um, I know no one in here is a liar. You just all lie. Never about anything important though, right? 
And I get it, no one in here would steal. Just forget those phantom tax deductions, right? And no one in here covets. You just hate your coworker because they got the promotion instead of you. And I'm sure, I'm sure that there's not a person in this room who's committed adultery, at least not physically, right? So it doesn't matter to the websites that we go to when no one's looking. See, the commands of God are meant to be a spiritual MRI that not only give us the diagnosis, but lead us to the cure. God's laws were never meant to be a ladder by which we climb and obey them so that we can earn favor with him. Aren't we usually just saying, when, I'm, when we're saying, well, I'm not that bad, we're, we're kind of comparing ourselves to just our dumb friend, aren't we? And that guy's not measuring up either. He's not measuring up either. See, God is not grading on a curve. Like, do you know what his standard is? It is 100% perfection. James, the brother of Jesus, says it like this. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Jesus himself says this, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. If that's God's standard, then how are we doing? No one aces this quiz. See, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Now, the flip side of the I'm not that bad equation is this, but I'm a good person. Anyone ever heard that one? I'm not really sure how that argument even works. Is like there a point where you do enough good deeds that you level up to righteous status with God? And what happens if you're kind of a good person? Like, do you slide under the gates of heaven right as they're closing? Like just maybe, maybe you'll get in. I mean, how good is good enough? And gosh, that has to be so exhausting. Always trying to earn God's favor, yet, no, yet never knowing if you guys are good. It strikes me that it's more like running on a treadmill that you can never get off. Always going, never knowing when you've arrived. See, attempting to earn God's favor, it will not work. Christianity is just too pessimistic of a world religion to allow us that, that we can be saved by our works. But it does offer us the only hope that we have for salvation. See, we aren't good people doing good things. We are broken people in the deepest place of our beings, sin sick from the inside and in need of rescue. Theologian Cornelius Plantinga really outlines um, the uphill battle that we have. Here's what he says. Sin is any act, any thought, desire, emotion, word, or deed, or its particular absence that displeases God and deserves blame then sin is the tendency to commit sins. Did you just see what an impossible situation we're in? We, he says, we sin in what we do. We sin in what we don't do. And at its core, we sin because our hearts are predisposed to sin from the start. Jesus himself said this, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, 
murder, adultery, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and they defile a person. You cannot earn your salvation with your good works any more than an infant can change their own diaper. Try as you might, you're just smearing around the mess. Now, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, as if that's not bad enough, right? Shows us really this impossible state that we need to be rescued from. Here's what it says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. I want to stop there, because I want to say to all the Christians in the room, apart from Jesus Christ, this was all of our stories. And yet for some of you that have yet to trust Jesus today, this is still your story. That sin has so woven itself into the fabric of our souls that apart from Christ, we were dead, we were enslaved, and we were condemned. So God is our creator. He wired us. He wired us to only be satisfied in him. And so we have these longings in our lives that we go through and we try and fill it with anything and everything. And yet we do not feel satisfied. And you know this because at its core, at its core, our sin has separated us from our holy God, our maker, and we are spiritually dead. Not only this, but we were enslaved. Specifically, the text is talking about that we were enslaved to our sin. I think the best way we can talk about this is that we are enslaved to our passions or beholden to our passions. So here's an easy way to see it. Have you ever wondered why you continue to run to the things that failed to satisfy you the last time you ran to them? Why is that? Like, why do we, why do we continue to do the things that we don't want to do? It's because we're enslaved to our sin. And if you add those things up, what we get to at its logical conclusion is this, we were condemned. See, the reality of hell is a testament to not just the evil of sin, but to God's opposition of that evil and his commitment to one day rid the world of it. And so if your salvation is by your works, you have no hope. So happy new year. <laughs> Listen, if this was our fallen state apart from God, if this was my fallen state apart from God, why would he save me? Why would he save you? Why would he invite you into his presence? Why would he welcome you home? We clearly have not deserved it and we haven't earned it. So praise God, we can turn from salvation by our works to salvation by grace. So look with me at God's response in the face of our sin. It's the back half of those verses we read in Ephesians. It is stunning. Picking up in verse four, but God. Aren't those the two most beautiful words in the Bible? But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So here it is. 
Salvation is not owing to any of our good works. It is owing all to God in his grace. We are saved by grace. And it is such good news. See, we went from death to life, from enslaved to set free, from condemned to forgiven sons and daughters of the king. Like, it's just so crazy. I mean, in one breath, the apostle Paul goes from telling us we were death row enemies of God to now you are forever delighted in by the God of the universe. This is good news. And maybe if you're in here and you're like, that just sounds too good to be true, I would tell you you're in good company because I think the Apostle Paul's thinking the same thing because he repeats himself in verses eight and nine, almost like he just can't fathom this thing. Here's what he says. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And it is why I love the reality that God doesn't help those who help themselves. That's crazy. God helps those who can't help themselves. And it's why Christians for centuries have stood and have said, I believe nothing I do or have done can earn my salvation. I am saved by grace. This truth, this belief, it is what is at the heart of the gospel that we are saved by what Jesus has done, not by what we do that God the Father sends Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, to live a perfect life in your place. And then he goes to the cross to die the death that you and I deserved as our substitute, absorbing the wrath of God against our sin. And then three days later, he rises from the grave, showing that our debt has been paid in full, showing that we have been freely forgiven forever, and we have now been made right with God. This is the gospel. I love this gospel so much because every other world religion says God will love you if it is only in Christianity that we hear this good news. God so loved the world that he sent his son. You may be tempted to think that this idea of grace is just in parts of the Bible, right? There's parts that we do rules and then there's parts that are grace. Like maybe Matt's just talking about Ephesians 2 or maybe the grace just shows up in things like John 3, 16. But can I tell you, it is grace through and through, cover to cover in our word, in the Bible. I mean, I even just was talking to Pastor Ryan this morning. I said, man, I'm starting the year reading in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And do you know what I saw this morning? God's grace. And I love perhaps my favorite story of this grace is a story that Jesus himself tells in the gospel of Luke. It's a story about a father and of a son. Now this son comes to the father and asks for his inheritance, which in effect is to say to his dad who's still living, hey, you're dead to me. Give me my money, I'm out of here. So his dad gives him the money and the son goes off, the text says, to a far land where he spends all that money partying it up. And he has a good time and he wastes it all. And when he's left with no friends and no bank account, no social status, he does the only thing he knows to do at this point. He gets a job as a hired hand in a pig pen. And he is so destitute and he is so broken in spirit that as he's feeding those pigs, he longs to just eat the things that he's feeding them. And he comes to his senses and he goes home. And do you know what his dad does? His dad welcomes him in. 
In fact, this is what it says. His dad says, let us celebrate for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. See, the very thing you and I for yearning, are yearning for, to be made right with God, it comes to us as the most surprising gift. Now, I don't know about you, but I give my kids gifts, not because they've earned it or deserved it, but because I love them. And so this gift, it's not out of anything they did, it's all out of what I've given to them, and that means that the gift is free, right? The difference between the gift being free this grace is that it would be something we would earn with our works, right? Now, when you do work and you get paid on your paycheck for what you work, that's called what? A wage. That's what you've earned. And yet, I just want to be clear with you this morning. You do not want what you have earned. You do not want what you deserve. In fact, the Bible says this, that the wages of sin is death. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserved. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We see that our God is so gracious that grace means we not only get better than we deserve, we get the exact opposite of what we deserve. Now, I get it. This flies in the face of the total way our culture works, right? Like even a couple weeks ago, Santa Claus showed up on the scene with a naughty and a nice list, didn't he? Like he's checking us out. But the fact that grace is hard to believe, that doesn't make it any less true. In fact, I'm working diligently to try and teach my kids this grace and what grace means. So I'll give you an example. Uh, my wife and I were working with our four-year-old Ella on sleeping through the night in her own bed all night, right? So the parents in the room, they can attest to there's nothing that will make you crazier than a preschooler kicking you in the head at midnight, right? So we were working with her and I was like, oh, I got a great idea we'll put together this reward system and we'll get a poster board and we'll throw some glitter on it and we'll say, baby, you get prizes when you sleep through the night. And all the parents are going, yeah, I see how this one's gonna go. Okay, after night, after night, after night of failure, I finally grab Ella up and I say, hey, let's go to Target because maybe it will motivate you to see the prizes you could get when you finally <laughs> succeed. So we show up at Target, right? We go to the aisle and then God in his grace kind of taps me, my hard head. And I get the idea to pick a toy up off the shelf, bend down on a knee and say, Ella, this toy is yours today. Why would I do that? She hadn't earned it. She didn't deserve it. It's because I want her to understand what I want you to understand today. That our father in heaven is not a harsh taskmaster but rather he graciously gives us way better than we deserve. Way better than we deserve. See, even if you don't follow and worship and love this Jesus, that doesn't make God any less gracious. You don't even have to be a Christian to experience the good gifts of God. In fact, James is gonna say that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And so all of these gifts, like a good meal with friends, Laughter around the table, sex, and the multicolored hues of sunsets that take our breaths away. These are graciously given to all mankind, whether you're a believer in Jesus Christ or not. And yet God in his grace says that he gives these gifts so that in his kindness, you might turn to him 
and you might trust him. And so I just for a second want to plead with you this morning, if you have yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you should flee from your sin and turn to him. He is your only hope, salvation. You should want this to be true. And if it is true, and it is, then it can change your life. See, when you believe that you are saved apart from what you have done and only through what Jesus Christ has done for you, then something happens. Your life changes. God saving us means that now we can have confidence despite our circumstances. Author Jerry Bridges puts it like this. I love this quote. Every day of our Christian experience should be a day of relating to God on the basis of his grace alone. Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. See, if you and I are saved by our good works, then our confidence will be shallow at best. We'll only be able to be confident that us and God are good based on what we've done lately. How am I doing? Have I read enough? Have I prayed enough? Have I shown up enough? Am I good, God? But if our confidence is rooted in, grounded in the grace of God and salvation through Jesus Christ, you know what happens? Even when you and I stumble, we run to the God who's already forgiven us in Christ rather than running away into guilt and hiding and shame. Now, even those of us that have been believers in Jesus Christ for a little bit, can we just admit that sometimes that's hard to grasp? We tend to have this idea that we got in by the grace of God, but then we need to downshift into performance-based works, right? Like now it's all up to me. Like I got to do this. Can I just say that is ridiculous? Nobody owns a house outright and continues to pay the bank. Enjoy the house. Be thankful for the house. Live in that house. But the debt's already been paid. Believer, breathe. You have been, you are being, and you will be saved by grace. In salvation, God's favor rests upon you already. And he has promised you an eternity with him for all those who have trusted in his son, Jesus Christ. Stop trying to earn something you already have. Now, not only does this grace transform how we relate to God, but it radically reshapes how we relate to one another. It changes our relationships. And so if you've been the recipient of grace, you know something. You know you're not awesome. In fact, the text in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 said, you were dead, enslaved, and condemned before Christ came and said, you're mine, let's go. And so Christians don't walk with a swagger. Like, what do we have to boast about? I'm not awesome. I just know the one who is. I don't look good in being saved. You want to know who looks good? God. God looks glorious in salvation because he has done everything to bring us back home. This is what he has done. And so imagine if that grace infused your marriage. Imagine if that grace infused your workplace, your family, your neighborhood, See, if grace became the primary operating system for our lives, rather than this, what have you done for me, performancism, we'd be able to rest. We'd be able to extend forgiveness. 
and we'd be able to see others not as the problem, but rather we would understand ourselves to be reconcilers, messengers of the same grace we've received. And it's why the church should be a radical place of grace, where it is okay to not be okay and where people can come in here busted up and broken as the grace of God meets us and slowly from one degree of glory to the next transforms us. See, if you see this, if you believe this, that Christ came to save sinners, not good people doing good things, and that your only hope for rescue is his grace, then you'll worship Jesus, you'll trust Jesus, and your life will change. That's what happened to me. My story is that there finally came a day when I saw that all the good works that I was trying to amass, everything that I was trying to do to earn something I already have, I finally began to see them for what they were, filthy rags when compared to the holiness and the splendor and the beauty and the grace of my God. And yet he sent his son still for me while I was dead in my trespasses. At my worst, Christ gave his best for me. This is what he's done. You know, I used to think that Jesus saved me and then Christianity was kind of like this. It was like I needed to study for the test really hard, show up, and maybe I would get the grade. I was so wrong. Do you know what Christianity is? It's this. It's that Jesus showed up to take the test that I could not pass and he aced it. And now through faith, his 4.0 is mine and it can be yours too. So I asked you a question at the top of this message. If you were to die tonight and give an account before God of your life, what would be your defense? What would you say? Can I tell you what I would say? I believe nothing I do or have done can earn my salvation. I'm just a sinner saved by the grace of God. My foundation, the foundation of my faith, the foundation of my life is that I have been saved by grace, not my works. So I have nothing to boast about. This can be your foundation too. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you that in your grace and in your abundant mercy, you have not laid out a bunch of rules to follow to get to you. You have not told us to climb an impossible ladder, but rather you have descended to get us out of the mess, to pluck us out of the muck and mire, and to save us for your glorious grace. Father, just personally, I wanna to confess to you, I don't deserve this. I could never earn it. I'm just so amazed, God, that you would come and you would save me. And we confess, Lord, we didn't deserve it and we couldn't earn it, but you came and saved us. And so praise be your name that because you sent your son, Jesus, we can have right standing with you. We can be promised a hope and a future and eternity with you. And we can never lose it because it's always by your grace. God, thank you for that. And then Lord, I thank you for all those this morning who are seeing the truth of what their good works would earn them. It would earn them separation from you. And so I wanna pray for all those, God, who are turning to you today. And so while all heads are still bowed and eyes closed, I just wanna offer up a prayer. If you would turn from your sin and trust Jesus today to be your king, you can just say this. Father, I confess that I've fallen short. I have sinned 
and I was in trouble. And yet today I trust that Jesus Christ did everything necessary to save me, that he's forgiven me of my sin at the cross, that he died so that I might be made whole with you again. And then on the third day he rose, showing my debt's been paid in full. And so I turn to him, I trust him, and I will follow him. And while we're still got our heads bowed and eyes closed, I just wanna ask God's blessing on your life if, if you turned and made that decision today. So would you do me a favor and just raise your hand straight up? I just wanna pray for you and thank God for you that he would save you. Thank you, Lord, that in your goodness and your grace, you have not left us alone. We love you because you first loved us. It is for your beautiful, your mighty name that we pray, King Jesus. Amen. Love you guys.